So John chapter 12, verse 36b to verse 50. This is God's word. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is God's word. Again, keep your fingers on Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53. Uh, this is a very significant moment as we come to the end of chapter 12, because this is the end of Jesus's public ministry. After this, Jesus is going to be spending time privately with his disciples. And then after that, uh, he is going to be arrested and crucified, and then he'll spend a bit more time appearing to people after his resurrection, but then he is ascended to the Father's right hand, and that's it for his time physically on earth. So this is a really significant time as we come to the end of Jesus' public ministry, and it is this final public appeal that Jesus gives. So there is meant to be a sense of urgency to this, particularly because if you remember from last week, we saw at the end of uh, verse 35 and 36, Jesus speaks about this theme of light and darkness. And he says, believe in the light while the light is here. The darkness is coming soon. And then what do we read him doing in verse 36 in the second half? He departs and hides himself. Why does he do this? It's almost like he is acting out the warning that he has just given. The darkness is going to come. While I'm here, there's light. Believe in me while you have the light, but soon darkness is coming. And then we see right at the end, Jesus then hides himself and departs from them as he gives this warning, as if he is pressing home the urgency, the reality that soon the darkness will overcome them and time will be up. And this is a timeless truth for all people it's a truth for us today to believe in the light. While we have the light, there will be a time where, as they say, the lights go out, where death will swallow us up. 
And we must believe while the light is here. Now, as Jesus gives this call to believe, John, the gospel writer, uh, wants to address a problem. And the problem that he wants to address is really the unbelief of the people. So as we look at our passage, notice it's a bit of an apologetic, which means to give a defense. John here is giving a defense for Jesus's ministry as Jesus's public ministry is drawing to a close as he completes his three years of public ministry, knowing that he performed many signs, he revealed his glory, but the reality is that he has not really attracted a huge following. At the cross, very few people will be there. Most of the people that are there are there to mock him. So Jesus public ministry on surface level seems like a bit of a failure because more people have rejected him than they have accepted him. And John wants to give a defense. He wants to give the reasons why this has happened to make sure no one says God has failed. He wants to obviously make sure that people understand this was exactly what God had intended to happen. It was exactly how he was going to bring about Redemption. But as people look at Jesus' public ministry, the natural question that people would be asking is, if he is the Messiah, why haven't more people believed in him? Why aren't more people following him? Why, as we saw in chapter 6, did masses of people desert him when they said this is simply too hard? Now, here is where we see two truths, two gospel truths that we have to hold together. That is the sovereignty of God over man's unbelief. God is sovereign. So Jesus says no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Or he says no one can come to me unless the father draws them. Something supernatural has to happen. God is sovereign over man's unbelief. That's one truth. And then we have this other truth, which is that every single person has a responsibility to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to trust in him. Everyone has a responsibility to hear this message and believe in Jesus. So we have God's sovereignty over unbelief, and then we have man's responsibility to believe in Christ. And as we look at our passage today, we see how these are held in tension. We see how these are held together and actually how God works out his grand plan of redemption, even in spite of man's unbelief. So we're going to see these two themes today. And the way we'll look at this is basically through two sections. One is looking at the problem of unbelief and then the solution to unbelief. And in each of the problem and solution, what we will see is one aspect where we're looking at more of a man-centered focus. We're looking at the responsibility upon man. And then the other aspect is going to be where we strip back the curtains and we see God's sovereignty. So we look at a God-centered perspective on the very same issue. And we'll see how there's a man-centered thing that we must look at, not man-centered in a derogatory way, but meaning to say we're going to look at the responsibility upon man in unbelief and in belief. And then we'll peel back the curtains and see the God-centered focus, to see God's sovereignty over each of those aspects. So from verse 37, let's look at our passage here today. Here we see the problem with unbelief. John says, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now, here's where you want to look at Isaiah 53. 
in verse 37 of John 12, um, John introduces this theme where then in verse 38, he quotes from Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, 1, we read, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, the context of Isaiah 52 and 53 is the prophet Isaiah describing the unusual nature of this servant. This servant is the Messiah, the savior of the world. And he's prophesied 700 years before he comes in Isaiah 52 and 53 and many other places. And as this servant is being described, there's an unusual nature about him. Just before this in chapter 52 of verse 14, Isaiah says, many were astonished at you. This is talking about the servant. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. This is saying the servant who was going to save, his appearance was going to become so disfigured. Literally in the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of Isaiah, the preceding verse talks about the servant being made glorious and then in verse 14 the word which we have his appearance was so disfigured is literally the opposite of glorious that is inglorious or humiliated so the servant who will be exalted is then going to be humiliated absolutely humiliated as his appearance is so disfigured that he barely looks like a man anymore see there was nothing that naturally led people to come to him as a Messiah. Who would have thought that? That the savior of the world would come and would be beaten and flogged and disfigured. No one would be naturally drawn to this kind of servant. Now the next verse in Isaiah 52 goes on to say, so shall he sprinkle many nations. We'll come back to that later. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. What that's saying is that even those who come to believe are astonished. It seems unheard of that this is the way that the servant would bring about salvation. No one could ever have expected this, that the savior of the world would bring salvation through being humiliated. So Isaiah says, kings shut their mouths. They're astonished. They gasp. They believe in something that seems unheard of. This is incredible. And immediately after this, in chapter 53 of verse 2, we read again, he had no form or majesty that we should look to him. This is Isaiah saying there was nothing that naturally led us to him. Nothing natural about the savior of the world being beaten beyond a pulp and then crucified. And so the natural question at the center of this is the question that John quotes from, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's the question. Who would believe this? And so John takes this passage and he says, Jesus fulfills this. Notice the ministry of Jesus, even though Jesus performed countless signs, even though he revealed his glory, people could not believe for as glorious as he is, God ordained that he would embody this humiliation that was spoken of by the servant. He is the one who would be so disfigured. He is the one who would be made so inglorious, so humiliated, so mocked and scorned. 
and it seems unbelievable to natural man. Now, here is where we come to the first part of how God has ordained the unbelief of his own people. Here is the man-centered focus. Here's where we can look at the way this plays itself out, looking at man's natural unbelief. See, God's people left in their natural state of unbelief were never going to come uh, to believe in a Messiah who embodied the humility and suffering that Jesus did. Notice this, the, the means that God used, the means that God ordained for the Savior of the world to come was completely incompatible with the natural desires of man. No one is naturally led to believing that actually this is the way that God is going to save the world through him taking on human flesh and then living a humble life and then being beaten to a pulp and scorned and mocked and humiliated. Nothing naturally leads people to that conclusion. See, we naturally desire a physically dominant, politically superior leader. That's what we desire. Someone who's going to get things done and take action. Not a leader who enters Jerusalem on a donkey and then says, my kingdom is not of this world. That's not what we're naturally inclined to. And all of this is part of God's sovereign plan. God ordained that the way in which the Savior would come would be completely unappealing to the natural desires of man so that he alone would get the glory in salvation so that no one could say, I have... uh, figured this out, or I've I've worked this out. There was nothing that naturally led people to that conclusion. Now, that's the man-centered focus here. We can see how that seems very unnatural for you and I in our natural state to actually trust in a Savior who is humiliated, who is mocked and scorned. But there is more to this, and here's where we look at the God-centered focus. Here's where we strip back the curtains and see God's sovereignty over all of this. John goes on to say in verse 39, as we come back to chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, in verse 39, John says, because of this, they could not believe. Now, this is strong language. Let's notice that again. Because of this, or therefore, they could not believe. Literally, he's saying it was impossible for them to believe. They were unable to to believe. In fact, what John is saying here is that God has ordained that his own people would become blinded and hardened to the message of the Messiah. So this is the second part of how God has ordained the unbelief of his people, which reveals his sovereign purposes over this. And now we come to Isaiah chapter 6. So John introduces another passage from Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Now, Isaiah chapter 6 is this uh, very well-known passage because it's where uh, Isaiah has this throne room vision. He sees the glory of God and he is utterly flabbergasted. He is hand over mouth, astonished, as the glory of God is revealed to him. And just before we get to that passage, what is fascinating is that in verse 41 of John 12, John says... Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John is saying that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. Now that's unavoidable from the context here. Isaiah 
Somehow, as he was into that throne room and he saw Yahweh high and exalted, John is saying he saw the glory of this man, Jesus, who we're speaking of now. Isaiah saw him. As Isaiah is completely wrecked, as he sees the glory of God, he sees the pre-incarnate Christ because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He radiates the glory of God. So as Isaiah sees the glory of God in that throne room, John is saying he sees Jesus in the sense of Jesus is the invisible image of the invisible God. And he is the one who radiates the glory of God. This is incredible. Now, as Isaiah sees this vision, he is full of shame over his own sinfulness as he sees the glory of God. And then he receives this commission. And here's the passage that John quotes from. In Isaiah 6, verses 10 and 11, God gives this commission telling Isaiah to go out and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, this was a judgment upon Israel. This was a judgment upon God's people to the already rebellious people. Make no mistake, they were already rebellious. Things were not going well for the people of Judah and the people of Israel at that time. Isaiah was then called to go and preach knowing full well that the message would only serve to harden the already rebellious people. Now, as a preacher, I can say that's a horrible commission in one sense to say you're going to go to a people. They're not going to respond. In fact, they're going to be hardened. They're not going to believe and eventually they're going to hate you. Now, John is saying that something similar has happened in Jesus's ministry. That's why he's using this passage here. That's why he's saying they could not believe because remember, Isaiah said this. He said this of Isaiah's ministry, but John is clearly saying not, that, not specifically that Jesus fulfills this, but rather there's something similar going on here in the ministry of Jesus and the reason why people are not believing. In a similar way, Jesus' ministry is one which hardens many people in their rebellious state. We know that to this day. We know that the aroma of Christ to some smells like life leading to life and others it's the stench of death leading to death and it hardens them even more in their already rebellious state and what we see in the ministry of Jesus is that particularly as he speaks to the religious leaders they become more hardened and the more hardened they become the more they seek his death the more they seek to crucify him and God sovereignly uses this to bring about his redemptive purposes. Now, here is where I want to make some qualifications to help us understand this. I have three particular points that I just want to use to qualify this picture of God's sovereignty over the hardening in part of his people. Number one, God is entirely within his right as God to do all that pleases him. God is entirely within his right to do all that pleases him. When this very topic in a similar way comes up in Romans 9, where Paul talks about how God, is, uh, God has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he hardens, Paul then goes on to say to people who would say, why does God do this? And Paul says, 
Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Shall what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me this way? So Paul is saying, who are you to answer back to God? He's the creator. You're the created one. You don't hold him to account. He holds you to account. In other words, people often come to this topic and they might say things like, what is God doing? Who does he make himself out to be? God or something? That's sort of the question that's going on. How dare God act in any way that he pleases? And the reality is in scripture, our God is in heaven. He does all that pleases him. So that's the first thing we must understand. God is entirely within his right to do all that pleases him. Now, the second point, God is never hardening anyone who is not already rebelling against him. God is never hardening anyone who is not already rebelling against him. Sometimes we have this false picture when we come across this theme. And the picture is kind of like people who have sort of uh, been tossed into the ocean and they're alive and they're just bobbing there on the ocean and they're crying out, waiting for God to save them. And God comes down to some people and he saves them. And to others, he says, too bad, bop, bop you under, down to your death. That's a false picture. The reason it's a false picture is because it gives this idea of neutrality. It gives this idea of man inherently good and actually desiring to come to the Lord. The better picture is one of humanity who have been in the presence of God and in their defiance of God, they jump overboard, shaking their fist at him and go all the way down to the bottom of the ocean floor. And in their rebellion, they die and they are on the bottom of the ocean floor, not seeking the Lord at all. That's the state of humanity. We are dead in our transgressions. We are dead and lifeless to the things of God. And God, in his mercy, even though we have rebelled against him, even though we have defied, he comes and he picks us up off the ocean floor and he washes us clean and breathes life into us so that he can set our feet firmly upon the rock of Christ. So make no mistake, no one is being hardened who does not already have a hard heart. No one is being hardened who actually is inclined toward the Lord. And then thirdly and finally, it is through the rejection of the Jews that salvation actually comes to you and I as just making an assumption that none of us are ethnically Jewish. It is through the hardening of the Jews that salvation comes to you and I. The hardening of the Jewish people meant that their rejection of Jesus became so strong that they literally cried out for him to be crucified. And the crucifixion of Christ that the Jewish people cried out for became the means by which a people from all nations would be cleansed of their sin. And this was foretold in Isaiah 52 in the passage we went over. Remember in Isaiah 52, 15, speaking of the servant, Isaiah says, he will be disfigured and defamed by many. And so in this way shall he sprinkle many nations. That's the idea of sprinkling clean many nations. It is through the Jewish people's rejection of the Messiah that salvation then comes to many people because the blood that they cried out for became the blood that cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness. 
And we know that as Paul says in Romans 9 to 11, that part of God's miraculous redemptive plan is actually that the rejection of the Jews, which leads to the salvation of the Gentiles, is meant to then arouse the Jews to jealousy, to see that salvation is now coming to more people, and it's meant to bring them back in, to trust in their Messiah. And this is God's redemptive purposes, his sovereign plan over man's natural state of unbelief. So to summarize that, number one, if we think about the man-centered approach of unbelief, God has ordained that the coming of his Messiah, he sovereignly ordained that the coming of his Messiah would be completely incompatible with man's natural desires. No one is naturally led to this. And then secondly, God sovereignly hardens already hard hearts to bring about redemption. He uses the rebellion of his people to then bring about a wonderful redemption to you and I in a miraculous way. Now, in verse 42, back to John 12, John almost seems to transition here, almost like he's saying, even though there's mass unbelief, there are some who believe. So he says many of the authorities believed. Now, while it is true that there are people believing here, I don't believe that John is actually beginning to say, oh, don't worry, there are people believing. Because notice what he says about the authorities who believe. They believe and yet they do not confess Jesus because they love the glory of man more than the glory of God. So John is showing how deep this unbelief goes. It goes so deep that even when people begin to believe, their belief is then squashed by their own self-preservation. So these authorities, though they believe, they are not willing to confess Jesus as the Christ because they love the glory of man. They love man more than the glory of God which is an example of what Jesus has spoken about in verse 25. Remember a few weeks ago where Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world keeps it for eternal life. If you love the glory that comes from man, you love your life. We have to hate our life in this world, which is to love the glory of God far more than the glory of man. See, after John has just explained why it is that people do do not believe in Christ, he's now giving an example of this, which is meant to serve as a stern warning. This is meant to be a warning to you and I. True belief in Christ will lead to full allegiance with Christ. True belief in Christ will lead to full allegiance with Christ. These people who are still looking for a savior through their natural eyes rather than eyes of faith, they will not pledge their allegiance to Christ if it means social loss. They're not going to do it. They've got too much invested in the social community. So they're not going to confess Christ because they love their life. They love their place in the marketplace. They love their place in the synagogue. They love praise from man. Now, here is the great danger for us. Do we love the glory of man more than the glory of God? Or do we love the glory of God more than the glory of man? See, loving the glory of man does not necessarily mean you love praise from man. Now, here's where I want to give an application of this, because I think it's easy to say for most of us, well, I'm not seeking to be a superstar. I'm not seeking to be the next Taylor Swift or someone and get praise from everyone. 
But here's the thing, loving the glory that comes from man does not necessarily mean you directly love praise from man. Loving the glory of man could mean that you simply love to feel comfortable in society. And in this way, you love people's affirmation of you. You love to have your place in society in a comfortable way where we're not going to be robbed of that. See, we don't want to be seen as a social outcast. We don't want to be robbed of our creature comforts that come as we simply fit in with the wider society. The last thing that we would want is to be seen as a zealous Christian who really believes that God created the world in six days, who really believes that our lives ought to gravitate around the gathering of God's people, and who really believes that God will be glorified as he condemns people to hell. Are people who really believe that, not just believe a few things about that, people who believe that have a faith that is costly. That's a costly faith. That's a full allegiance with Christ. And so many people in our culture claim to be a follower of Jesus while still loving affirmation from the world around them. They love the ability to live a comfortable, no-nonsense life. They don't want to be seen as a social outcast or as a zealot. They love being able to say they follow Jesus in an environment where you can say that and still look like anyone else in society. Not look like a crazy Christian, but just look like any other work colleague. And what we don't want is for someone to rattle our cages by calling us to a standard of discipleship that may mean that we lose that comfortable place in society. We don't want people to shake our cages up so that we end up following a path of discipleship that may mean we lose our job or may mean that we lose our friendship or in an increasingly antagonistic society, possibly even our lives. So often we have this conversation and many Christians say things like, well, you want to be sensible and you don't want to, you know, compromise your job or anything like that. Well, if allegiance to Christ requires you losing your job, you lose your job. That's the reality of it. How many martyrs through the years of church history, what if they had have said, actually, you know what? I don't really want to lose my life today. I think I'd rather keep it. Got a holiday planned. They went to their death. How much less losing a job? And this is the reality. True belief will lead to full allegiance with Christ. This is what it is to love the glory of God more than the glory of man. Now, how do we come to this point of absolute allegiance to Christ? Here is where we come to the solution. So this is looking at the problems of unbelief, looking at it through a man-centered lens and then the God-centered lens. And here we begin to transition to the solutions to the unbelief that plagued Israel and that continues to plague man today. And so again, we'll focus firstly on man's responsibility and then look at the curtains being peeled back and God's sovereign work in producing belief. See, John's underlying theme here is the glory of God. That's what he's saying. People love the glory of man more than they love the glory of God. In contrast to that, Isaiah saw the glory of God. Isaiah beheld the glory of God 
in a wonderful way as Christ was radiating the glory of God in that throne room. And think about Isaiah's task. Think about the task that Isaiah had been given. He was told that he was going to preach a message that no one was going to listen to. And actually, as people heard it, they were going to become more hardened. The prophet's life was not luxurious. And if he loved the glory of man, Isaiah never would have done that. He never would have done that if he loved the glory of man. But he loved the glory of God. He loved the glory of God because he saw the glory of God. He saw the glory of God and all of a sudden he realized his life is worthless in comparison. Everything that matters is wrapped up in this God who has revealed his glory. And so likewise, we must behold the glory of God in such a way that makes the glory of man seem like absolute garbage in comparison. We must behold the glory of God in this way. Now, how do we see this? Well, from verse 44, as we finish by looking at this last passage very briefly here in Jesus' final appeal, he says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Now, what is interesting about the words used here, particularly in verse 45, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. The word for see is not the normal word for see. It's a word that we get theory from. It's a word theoreo where we get theory. And what it is, is it's meant to convey this idea of prolonged observation, sustained attention, not theory in a negative sense of just some sort of abstract idea, but it's theorized as in someone who theorizes over someone, someone who observes something with prolonged attention. It's not simply a glancing look, it's captivated observation. Deep meditation. That's what Jesus is saying. Whoever meditates upon me, meditates upon the one who has sent me. As in, he begins to see the fullness of who I am. We see the glory of God as we behold Jesus Christ. And we behold Jesus Christ by meditating upon his divinely inspired word. There are many other ways that we may do this. But primarily, Jesus, as the word who has become flesh, has ordained that we would meditate upon him, that we would behold the glory of God as we now come to his word, which tells us of Jesus. We meditate upon Christ through sustained attention to his word in our individual lives. We meditate upon Christ through the preaching of God's word right now as Christ is being proclaimed. We meditate upon Christ in this community as you and I as individuals stir one another on by speaking the word of Christ to one another. We minister the word to one another. And in doing this, we are bringing ourselves deeper and deeper into that throne room of Isaiah. See, perhaps if God wanted, he may give us an Isaiah 6 vision. But let's be honest, that was something spectacular and is not normative for today. Now, it's God's prerogative to reveal himself however he wants to. But the way that he has ordained for us to come to know the glory of God that we see in the face of Jesus Christ is by coming to his word and not simply reading his word, but as Jesus says, theorizing, observing it, deeply meditating upon this word. And day by day, as we do that, we come to understand the glory of Christ in a greater way. In verse 47, Jesus says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, 
The word for keep is the word for a jailer who guards cells. So Jesus is saying, you must guard my word like a jailer guards prisoners in the cell. We are called to lock up the word of God in our hearts. What are you doing to lock up the word of God in your heart? What practices are there in your life right now that like a jailer, guard the word of God in your heart? And not only that, but a good jailer is, of course, not going to simply allow other people to just wander into cells, unless you're in Scandinavia where they have ridiculous prison systems, but good prison guards are not going to allow people to just wander in. And so likewise, we ought not to let other distractions wander into your heart. What is it that is wandering into your heart, occupying a place that the Word of God should primarily have? What shows are you watching? Which people are you talking to? What news articles are you reading that is allowing people to wander into your heart rather than guarding that place so that the Word of God is locked up in there? As we meditate upon the word and lock it up in our hearts, we increasingly behold the glory of God. Now, the other aspect, the final aspect, as we draw to a close, is God's sovereignty over this. So here's where we see the truths of man's responsibility to believe and then God's sovereignty over producing that belief. When Jesus says, whoever believes, believes in my Father, whoever sees, sees my Father, this is a call not to look to Jesus with natural eyes. The religious leaders and many of the Jews looked to Jesus with natural eyes. They saw him as perhaps a new political ruler and Jesus resisted them. Natural eyes will not fit for this task. The natural state of man is so inclined that he would not believe and he would not see. But when the appeal of Christ comes, when the appeal of Christ comes to look to me, to believe in me, there is nothing natural about that. This is a supernatural word that comes from the creator of the world, that comes to cold, dead hearts, and blind eyes and suddenly life and sight come. The appeal of Christ to believe in him is like the word of Christ that we saw in John 11 coming to Lazarus, stone cold dead in that tomb. And Jesus booms his voice to say, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, who had been stone cold dead, marches out of that tomb for the word of Christ had come piercing into his heart to bring life. And this is the miracle of the new birth. This is God's sovereign and mysterious working. It is a supernatural word that comes to blind eyes and deaf ears and miraculously new life comes. And all of this is to show the glory of God so that no one could lay any claim of merit for it is absolutely unexplainable in natural terms. That dead people who rebel against God should all of a sudden have their heart captivated and gripped and choose to profess absolute allegiance to Christ. That is a miracle. That is a wonderful, wonderful miracle. Now, Jesus attaches one final warning to this in verse 47. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, we briefly celebrate there that Jesus did not come to judge, but to save. But then he says, the word which he spoke will serve as a judge 
Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. It's quite simply to say, for example, if I was driving down the street in a 40 kilometer zone and I was going 50 and a police officer pulled me over, I might be able to plead ignorance and say, I've never been on this road before. I didn't actually know this. And he might have mercy upon me and let me go. And then the very next day, I'm traveling on the same road, doing the same speed, the same police officer pulls me over. I can't plead ignorance anymore. That police officer will say, I'm sorry, sir, we, ha- we literally had this conversation yesterday. I don't believe you. The word that I spoke to you yesterday was a warning to never speed on this road again. In a similar way, those who have stood under the preaching of God's word, those who have heard the gospel, will have no chance of forgiveness on that final day. There is no pleading of mercy in the very end. That word will stand against them. And so the warning here is to all who have heard the word of Christ, calling them to trust in him. Those people who have not responded in faith, those people who may have even said, yes, I believe, but that belief has never actually made its way to full allegiance for perhaps you love the glory of man more than the glory of God. And maybe today that voice of Christ is booming upon your heart to say enough with superficial, shallow belief. Believe in me in such a way that you see the glory of God, that your allegiance is wholly and entirely with me. Now, why is it such a serious thing to not respond in faith to the word of Christ? Well, because Jesus has not spoken simply on his own authority. But verse 49, the father who sent him has commanded him what to say and what to speak. In simple terms, this is saying Jesus is the final word. There is no waiting for more revelation. There is no waiting for anyone else to come and offer helpful advice to salvation. In Christ, God has stretched out his arm of salvation saying, this is my son given for you to live the life that you were supposed to live, but could not to die the death that you deserve. Believe in him. He is the final word. He is God in the flesh living amongst us. So believe in him and be saved. And with this warning, while the word is still heard, even today, while the word is heard today, there is still time Jesus has come as light so that whoever hears him shall not remain in darkness. But at some point, the lights will be switched off. Now, to finally conclude, and that's the preacher's liberty of at least three finales. John's gospel gives this picture of two themes of of the glory of God and the humiliation of God amongst many other themes, but we've seen those particularly now. We see the glory of Christ and we see the humiliation of Christ. And in our passage today, John concludes the public ministry of Jesus by taking two passages from Isaiah, which demonstrate both of these aspects. Jesus is the humble servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, the servant who is made to be humiliated the servant who is made to be inglorious, the servant who is made to be so disfigured, so beyond human semblance that he is unrecognizable, disfigured and humiliated. But then Jesus is also the exalted and radiant King of glory of Isaiah 6. He is that throne room God, 
who radiates the glory of God, who makes people scream out that they are unclean, scream out to have mercy. Now, in the first coming of Christ, we see the humble nature of the Messiah. We see God in the flesh mounted on a donkey, entering into Jerusalem, saying, my kingdom is not of this world. But in the second coming, he is not coming in humility. He is not coming as the Isaiah 52, 53 servant. He is coming in radiant glory and majesty. He is coming on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood. He is coming to take vengeance on all of his enemies, on all who have not bowed before him. And so whether you have believed or not, of course, the call if you have not believed is to believe. The call for us who have trusted is to rejoice. Rejoice in great fear and joy. Rejoice in the humility and the glory of our Savior. Rejoice in how glorious He is made because of so humble He has come and long for that day where He will return in absolute glory and complete exaltation, where our hearts will be absolutely captivated as He pierces the sky and we enter into the fullness of our inheritance. Let us long for that day. Let's pray now and then we will sing before we take the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you that you have shown your salvation in a way that is astonishing, absolutely astonishing that the Savior of the world would save the world through such humility, through becoming disfigured, brought to shame, made inglorious. And yet that reveals your glory even more, for that is the way that you are going to bring about redemption to all of your people, those who are far off brought near by the blood, the very blood that people cried out for to be shed. And that blood would be the blood which cleanses us from all unrighteousness, which makes us as white as snow. How we rejoice in this. So we pray now. Lift up the eyes of our hearts to behold the glory of our Savior and let us long for that day of redemption. Let us long for it and stir one another on to that day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.